Uh, Today's reading will be taken from Romans chapter 4. So Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 13. The promise realized through faith. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver um, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us uh, who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you can um, keep that passage there in front of you, that will be really helpful. And then in a moment we will just pray before we come back to that. I don't know if you're much into athletics, but one of the events I'm always sort of amazed by and very much confused as to how it works is the pole vault. Uh, preaching to me often feels as though you're attempting to pole vault but with a straw uh, unless the Holy Spirit sort of shows up this sort of mediocrity of my words is very evident to me so why don't we just pray as we come to these words that the Holy Spirit would work and would minister uh, within us Father God we thank you for your word we thank you for your promise we've just sung that we're children of the promise that we walk by faith and yet We find that so hard (laughs) on Tuesday afternoon, on Wednesday morning when the stresses and strains of everyday life have borne down upon us. It seems harder to remember those promises. They seem more distant. We forget who we are. So, Father, as we come to your word, we're thankful that you remind us who we are, who you are, what you've done. And so, Holy Spirit, ask that you might work through my words this morning, that you might breathe life into these words that we read. As we read that Scripture speaks to our very souls, it divides bone and marrow and speaks to our inner being, that, Lord, you might do that for us this morning. 
we pray. Amen. I want to take a moment for us to think as we come to this passage this morning about the pain of unmet promises. I wonder if you've ever had something that had promised to be so good, but that didn't deliver. Maybe it was something that you placed your hope in, that you'd bet your future on, and then didn't come through. Maybe it was a thing. And maybe you thought, if I can just have that, if I can just have that quality of life, if I could just have those resources, those opportunities, I wouldn't be so stressed. I'd really be joyful. I'd really be thankful. Only to find your expectations disappointed. I used to find that the good times passed pretty quickly. Maybe it was a position. You've worked all your life for it. You've sacrificed your ground for it. You paid your dues. Only to find it wasn't what you thought it would be. Or maybe you got passed over. Or maybe the cost it demanded to keep was too high a price to pay. Maybe it was a relationship. It seemed to be everything you needed. You'd mapped your future out together. You thought they'd be the one to make you happy. Only find a gap between what you built them up to be and who they really were. Or maybe you lost them. Or maybe you pushed them away. Asking them to be someone they're not. Maybe it was a move. If I can just get to that place, I'll find the opportunities I've been looking for. I'll be free of my past. Only to find the same old you. The same dissatisfactions at the other end. Maybe it was a change. If I can just change this part of me. Or if I can just look a certain way. Or if I can lose or maybe just hide that weakness. I'd finally be comfortable in my skin only to find you weren't, or you couldn't. You know, for me, I grew up in a very poor inner city area with all manner of brokenness around us. And the lie that I believed was that my greatest problem was the potential of not getting out of there. And so I thought my hope for salvation was to work my way out of there. If I can work hard at school, and if I can get into the best school and do well, I'll find people like me, because I don't want to be like them. I'll be accepted. I'll find freedom. My life will really have a purpose. I'll be somebody. I'll do something meaningful until I got there. And I realized it was nothing like what I thought it would be. I told myself I'd feel confident and I never felt so insecure and insignificant. I was shattered. I told myself I'd feel happy. I never felt so depressed, meaningless, lost in all my life. I was no happier. I told myself I'd belong. I never felt like such an imposter. I didn't belong at all. What had once promised so much delivered so little. Everything I'd hoped in, what I put such faith in to save me, didn't deliver. I felt empty, stupid, and alone. You know, we put our faith in all manner of places. Sometimes you know, like me, all too well, the painful experience of unmet promises. But this passage is all about the promise that God makes to his people. That the whole earth would be renewed, restored and remade 
in him. That we could know life in all its fullness, that it was always intended to be lived in. But the question after the last passage, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, was how do we lay hold of the promise of God? You know, unlike the promises of the world that we work so hard for, that call us to spend ourselves for, the promise of God is entered, not by what we do, but by believing that he will do it. And that's the one thing to take from today, if nothing else. The promise of God is entered not by what we do, but by believing that he will do it. And so to understand the depth of Paul's point here, we just need a little bit of background first before we dive into these verses. God, from nothing, out of the abundance of his love, his joy, his contentment and fullness, creates a good world. He doesn't exist and then he finally gets to a point and realizes, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty lonely here. Now I need to create people in order to sort of scratch an itch that's been here to find a fullness that I don't have. No, no, it's the opposite. Out of his fullness, out of his sufficiency, out of the love, joy, peace of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit together, out of that God creates in order to share his fullness to us. And so God places humanity on the earth to rule it, to subdue it, to steward it, and to enjoy it, to represent him. And yet, in Genesis 3, we see the fall of humanity. That humanity rejects what God has said. It's like this. God has said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But they rejected what God has said. They placed faith instead in what they saw. Listen to how it puts it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... It was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see that narrative that's there. We know better. We know better what is good, what is right, what is perfect. And God, you are holding it out on us. It isn't enough for them to be in God's image previously been told that that man and woman has been made in God's image it's not enough to be in God's image we want to be God and the result is a curse upon the earth and all life on it and yet there's a promise too that God will make it right through one who crushes the serpent who had deceived them we see that fall of humanity but just a few chapters later in Genesis 11 we see the fall of society See, because society seeks a godless glory. Listen to how they put it. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to be something. They want to be somebody apart from God. And look at God's response. Verse 7 and 8. He frustrates them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Don't we see that? Don't we experience that? A complete confusion between us where we cannot understand one another. Society continues to dream and to put faith 
in the promise of a renewed world society without God. And yet every attempt to bring society together without God ultimately produces devastation. Social media promised to connect us, but has divided and disconnected us. Every political system promises prosperity and delivers nothing but oppression by degrees. This world will never be changed at the ballot box. We see the fall of humanity, we see the fall of society, but just the next chapter, just a few verses after, here is God's answer to this. His answer is a family from whom all the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 1, speaking to Abraham. This is the promise that Paul is talking about. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice about this promise compared to the world's ideas of trying to remake the world, to refine a sort of promise of hope and joy and prosperity and glory without God, that it all depends upon human work, on human intelligence, human systems. Notice here, though, as Conor McGregor might put it, you'll do nothing. God will do it. I will make of you. I will bless you. He will make a family who will grow to reach all corners of the globe and embrace all peoples on the globe who will be lavished with the blessing of God and share the blessing of God with those around them. That's the promise that Paul is writing of here that Abraham received, that he wants to show is received through faith in Jesus. So look at those first four verses or so there from 13 to 17. And we see that faith lays hold of the promise. You see in those first few verses there, 13 to 15, that the promise comes through faith, not the law. Through God's provision, not your performance. Paul writes, for, and he's continuing what he's left off at verse 12, the promise didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's spoken in those verses before that we looked at last week about how we're justified, we're made right before God through faith. And now he's going to say something, you know, connected but slightly different. Not only are we made right before God by faith, but actually we receive the promise, the blessing, the favor of God through faith too. See, the right response to the law is not to see our ability to meet its demands, The right response to the law is to see our inability to meet its demands. The right response to the law is to see our need of a substitute to keep it for us. Jesus himself teaching on this, John 5 verse 46 says, If you believed Moses, he's speaking to Pharisees, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. What did Moses write? He wrote the law. The righteous response is to place your faith in what Jesus has done. When you read of the law's demands, it's to see that you haven't kept it, you couldn't keep it, you won't keep it, but there's one who has. You're justified, you're made right through faith, and you inherit the promise through faith too. We become part of what God has always been doing 
to restore creation by believing that's what God's doing and has done in us. It didn't come through the law. We know that that's true because the law was given to Moses 430 years after the promise to Abraham. Even historically, we know that that must be the case. How can Abraham possibly anticipate a law that he has not received? But why faith and not the law? Verse 14. If it's the adherents of the law who are heirs, faith is null. Whereas faith is emptied. And the promise is void. The promise is powerless. Why does it do that though? Verse 15. For the law brings wrath. The only thing that you can ever hope for if it's about the law reckoning and judging what it is that you have done, the only thing that you can ever hope for is to receive what you deserve. Wrath. Because you cannot keep it. You have not kept it. You will not keep it. Dante, in his picture of hell, has the sign over the gate at the entrance that says, All hope abandon, ye who enter here. There is no hope to possibly keep the law. It only brings wrath. So why have the law then? That's the next question that Paul answers here, 15. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. And the point here is not that people didn't sin before the law, they do, but that the law's presence reveals our failing to keep it. It reveals our condition. Unless there is a command there for us to break, we're not so aware of how broken we are. To give you an example, um, one of my sons, Aaron, is, uh, if anything, honest sort of to a fault sort of from himself. So we've stopped now really asking the question, you know, did you have a good day at school? Were you good? Uh, because Aaron's conscience is really a little bit sort of too sensitive. A frequent answer would be, well, I was a little bit good. I was a little bit naughty. Uh, and then, you know, the stuff you'll recount, you just think you don't want to tell him. But that's, that's, you're all right, bud. <laughs> you're okay. Uh, but one day, one of my favorite sort of responses to this, he came back from nursery. He said, well, you know, I, I've been a little bit good, a little bit naughty. So, well, you know, what did you do? He said, well, the teacher told me not to go down the slide. Everybody told me not to go down the slide. I went down the slide. The law serves as a way of revealing what our condition is. That we get told it and somehow it makes us want to do it more. If we didn't have something there to break, we wouldn't realize how broken we really are. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. It depends on faith, Paul tells us, verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace. It works on faith so that you can get what you don't deserve. If it's on the law, then you can only ever get what you do deserve, which is wrath. If it's based on grace, then there's the possibility of receiving what you didn't deserve out of it. So what's the result? That the promise is guaranteed to all his offspring, to also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, not just the one who does what it says. 
The word there, guaranteed, babaios in Greek, it means, sorry, this is a pretentious bit that's in every sermon where I just sort of remind you that it's originally written in one language and has to be translated to another, and not all of our English words always quite do justice to the original language. Babaios, it means to walk on solid ground. It's guaranteed to all his offspring, not just the ones who've received the law, but to those who share the faith of Abraham. So he says, that's why God has said, I've made you the father of many nations. It must be this way because the promise was always global. It was never a national promise. It was never just to Israel. It was always to be a global people spanning the whole face of the earth. I've made you the father of many nations, he says. And this is guaranteed by the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He brings existence. He brings life where it isn't. He holds the power of life in his hands. You can have confidence in God's word, his promise, because it was from God's word that he created everything from nothing. That picture of God in the creation, of speaking into existence, speaking things that are from nothing, gives you confidence that when he gives his word of promise, that you can believe that too. The promise is claimed and laid hold of through faith, not your performance. But secondly, we see faith here in the life of of Abraham. And Paul makes a transition because the question that we might sort of ask now is, well, what does the sort of faith that lays hold of the promise look like? That's quite important, isn't it? Because we might ask the second question, even more relevant, how do I know if I have the faith that will get the promise? That's really important, isn't it? So look at verses 18 to 22 there with me. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations that he'd receive the promise. In hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against the fact that he really wasn't seeing much before him. He's a hundred years old and still doesn't have a child. And yet he still believes. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. We've read about the fall of humanity and that really coming from the place of actually rejecting God's word, rejecting what you've heard from him and instead trusting in what you see before you and Abraham is doing the opposite. In hope he believed against hope as he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He believed what God had told him, not his doubts, not what the world around him would tell him. So the first thing we can say about that kind of faith, what does that faith look like that lays hold of the promise? The first thing we can say is that faith is making God's word loudest in your head and in your heart. We were told there, verse 19, he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or the barrenness of Sarah's womb. See, faith is not positive thinking. It's not switching your mind off to the reality in front of you. He considered his body. He knew he was old. He knew he was at the point of 100 years of age. And who else? Who wants to start their family at 100? Who wants to begin the sleepless nights, 
the dirty nappies at 100 years of age. Faith isn't positive thinking. He considered his body. He considered the reality that in terms of circumstances, it wasn't looking very good. He's got three pretty reasonable concerns there, hasn't he? That age, frailty, and fertility. And even more, as I said, aside from whether they can have a family, would you really want to at that point? But faith is making God's word loudest in your head and in your heart. Secondly, though, faith is not allowing your current circumstances to determine your level of trust in God's promises. Look at verse 20. No distrust concerning the promises of God was in him. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The absence of faith, and that's the word there, distress is apistia, it's two words, no faith. The absence of faith, the draining of faith, we might say, leads to wavering. That word waver means to separate out, to judge. It means taking the place of weighing and judging the merit of God's promises. No lack of faith led him to a place of actually critiquing the value of God's promises. Would he really come good? The best way I can try to sort of put this uh, idea is to share a little story with you. Um, I'm not a fan of heights. I can just about be at a height, but I certainly can't do very much when I'm up there. Uh, And not long after we were married, uh, we were living in a sort of block of flats. It wasn't too high, really. I think we were maybe second or third story, but I'm probably doing that thing where you embellish a story. It probably wasn't nearly as high as I would like you to believe. Um, But we were living up there, and I managed to lock myself out. And the only way that sort of remained to get back in was through the balcony doors that I'd left open. So I knew I was going to have to climb up and get over my fear of heights. Thankfully, there's some workmen opposite uh, who had a very big set of ladders. But now I'm in a shame spiral because I'm too ashamed really to ask them to go up, but that's really what I'd like to do. But I'm too ashamed not to go up before Karis returns from work and to have to sort of explain that and lose that sort of face. Uh, So I go over to the workman and I lend what could best be described as his what I hope is a genuine piece of incidental Irish I learnt the other day. I I lent their bockety set of ladders. uh, That is wobbly or unsteady. Uh, They were very structurally unsound. I tried to sort of turn my brain off sort of to that because it was bad enough as it is. Uh, And there was no one footing them for me, by the way, as well. So it's just me there with the ladders up against the balcony until I get halfway up. And now is the moment of real decision because... Am I really actually going to go all the way up? Or am I going to do the devastatingly embarrassing thing of climbing back down and retreating and just waiting for Karis to come home? And so I must have wavered there for a good few minutes as I tried to work up the courage to actually get up to a meaningful height on the ladders. I had to decide, was I really going to trust the ladders to get me there? I was embarrassed at my fear, afraid of the telling off I'd get if I didn't, wavering, stuck halfway up the ladders, neither up nor down. No 
distrust, no lack of faith, led Abraham to waver concerning the promises of God. Instead of placing faith in God's declaration of our justification in Christ, we waver as we judge the merit of God's word. Can we really trust it? Can we really believe it? Can we really believe that it will carry us there? And yet instead, we're told here, he grew strong. He was filled with power. He was empowered. And there's a contrast with not growing weak in his faith from verse 19. Rather than growing weak in faith, he grew strong. But why? The contrast is that we weaken in faith by considering circumstances. And we grow strong as we give glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And the word there is literally weight. Glory. Weight. You grow in strength as you give weight to God, not your circumstances. So thirdly, we can say that faith is that we see God as bigger than our circumstances. We're told, verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. And yet, it's worth just pausing and saying what that isn't. Abraham's fully convinced, but he doesn't know all the facts. He doesn't know everything that's to come. He doesn't know exactly what that will look like in God delivering. He doesn't have proof. But he's convinced that God will be able to do what he'd promised. Fourthly, faith is believing that God will come through. He might not know exactly what that will look like, but he believes that God will come through for it. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness, we're told. See, faith isn't laziness. It's not doing nothing. Believing that we're counted righteous before God by faith is not to say that we do nothing, not at all. Abraham's life evidences that. He gets up and he goes. Fifthly, we can say faith has a go. It puts one foot in front of the other. Faith is making God's word loudest in your head, in your heart. Faith is not allowing current circumstances to determine the level of faith and trust in God's promises. It's seeing God as bigger than your circumstances. It's believing that God will come through and it's having a go. It's putting one foot in front of the other. We see faith in the life of Abraham. And then thirdly, lastly, we see faith for all. And Paul makes a little transition here. Because just in case, after all of that, you tell yourself that maybe it's because of what Abraham did that he's right before God. Because he stepped out and he followed God's promises and left. Paul wants to remind us again that it's about faith for Abraham and it's about faith for all. And he sees Abraham as an example here. Uh, Noel Gallagher wrote the song Cast No Shadow about his sort of admiration for Richard Ashcroft from uh, The Verve. Uh, For you significantly younger than me, it's a little sort of... uh, history lesson in 90s uh, music. Uh, One part of it here says, chained to all the places that he never wished to stay, bound with all the weight of all the words he tried to say, and as he faced the sun, he cast no shadow. Full of sort of admiration, he almost sort of sees him in a godlike way, that he doesn't cast a shadow like mere mortals. He leaves uh, a legacy, an example that's so hard to follow. Well, Abraham is not like that. 
When Paul sees him as an example, he's not the example to look up to and to think that you'll never emulate. You'll never possibly be able to achieve what he achieved. If you see Abraham like that, you really haven't understood him at all. Paul's idea of him being an example here is that he is just a man that God has counted righteous, that he could be you or he could be me. That's the point. That's the way in which he's an example for us all. Paul sees, as he said before in Abraham, an example for all of us. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, we're told. And that's a huge statement. Because what Paul is saying here is that these words, given centuries and centuries earlier, were always written for us to receive too. The way that Peter puts this, 2 Peter 1, verse 21, that no prophecy, no word of God was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't just see it that they're there for our information, when he says that, by the way, but that it explains our experience of God's grace in our lives. It was written... Not for his sake alone, but for ours also, because it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. We find, just as Abraham was counted righteous before God by faith, so are we. Yeah, there's a question there, isn't there? Because is our faith different to Abraham's? Does it look a bit different for Abraham to have faith in God as opposed to us. Yes and no. Abraham believed God's promise of redemption would come through the gift of a miraculous child. He doesn't know how exactly, and he had to wait to see it. And there's a false start as he attempts to make it happen himself as he sleeps with one of his servants. But he did believe. So he left home, left his job, left his former life behind to follow the God he had just met, who had just spoken to him. For us, we look back to God's promise fulfilled in Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and though we don't see it, it reshapes all our life. Abraham was looking forward to something he didn't quite see. We look backwards to something we don't quite see and forwards again to Jesus' return that we don't quite see yet. It looks a little different. We have more details than Abraham ever did. But like Abraham, we believe that God has a promise. Promise of redemption and fulfillment of life and joy in all its fullness to the earth, of which we're a part. We believe, like Abraham, that God will deliver. And thirdly, we know that we have to trust him to do it. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead uh, Jesus our Lord, whom he delivered up for our trespasses, we're told. The word there, delivered up, it's, it talks about being delivered over into custody. In fact, maybe the, the image might be, if you think back to the Cold War, of that image of prisoners of war actually being handed back over across a bridge from one place to another that Jesus was delivered over for our trespasses Jesus is given up 
because we can't keep the law. And yet he's also raised for our justification. He's delivered over that our sins be paid, but he's raised that we might be made right. Jesus' resurrection shows that Jesus' offering that is himself was accepted, that it works, that we're free. And so Abraham is an example for us all not to feel inadequate, not to feel he's some impossible example that we'll never live up to, but that we, like him, might be counted righteous by faith. Everybody is always looking to a promise somewhere. A promise of a greater joy, peace, fulfillment in life. But none of those promises ever really deliver. And yet often we find ourselves looking in those very same places. It's why we need so deeply gospel community. It's why we need to be part of a connect group. It's why we need to be part of a DNA group. It's why we need brothers and sisters who can remind us, who can recall us. Relay the promises of God to us again can help us turn our eyes away from false gods onto Jesus. The question we often live with and wonder is, will Jesus come good? The reason we find ourselves attaching faith and hopes to so many other things is that we don't really know whether to trust that God's plan is better and that God will come good on it. We've spent our lives looking in so many different directions for what only God can ever give. Finding at the end of such big promises, unmet, such deep disappointment. We wonder, how can we trust God to deliver? How can we know that we'll lay hold of all he's promised? We see this in a couple of the disciples In the immediate days after Jesus' death and resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus turns up and walks with them. He says at one point, this is from Luke 24, verse 19, he said to them, what things are you talking about? What events are you talking about here and reflecting on? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's the despondency of unmet promises, isn't it? We had put our hopes in it being true. We had bet our futures on it. But it looks hopeless now. And yet, Jesus was delivered up for trespasses and raised for justification. Will he come good? Yes, he will. We're all tempted to look elsewhere 
for what we'll only ever find in him. The resurrection is our hope and reassurance that we will lay hold of all he promises. How do we lay hold of these promises then? Well, Paul tells us by faith, not by what we do and have done and will do, but in trusting what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. We're made right before him by faith. We lay hold of everything that he promises, of everything that we've ever looked to, and it's not wrong to look to. We're wired for that. We are wired for joy. We find it in Jesus. We lay hold of it through faith. Let's pray and then we'll sing together again. Father, we, each of us, in different ways, in different places, know the feeling of looking for something that we should have looked for in you, that we could only find in you, but that we looked for in something else, somewhere else, someone else. And we, each of us, know the pain of unmet promises as the thing that promised the kind of life that we've always wanted didn't come through. Father, I thank you that far from asking us to abandon what is a God-given desire and pursuit and wiring within us to long for joy in our existence, You don't tell us to abandon. You tell us to find in you. And Father, I thank you that we lay hold of that, not through what we've done, because if it is, we could never possibly have the hope of grabbing hold of it, but through your gift, through your grace, through faith, through believing that you will do what you have always done and are always doing. And always will do until you return and we see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So Holy Spirit, I pray you might minister within our hearts today and through this week. That those things that we're so tempted to look to and to attach promises of hope to, those lies, whatever they may be, you might help wean us off those. And that You might show us greater joy and peace and purpose and meaning in you. And reassure us, I pray, that it's not through what we've done or what we do or what we will do, but that it's through faith in what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for that hope and reassurance that Christ Jesus wants for all gave his life for us that we can never lose what you have so abundantly and sufficiently provided no matter how deep our sin may be your grace always goes one louder it always is able to overwhelm all of our brokenness so spirit i pray that you might minister these things deeply into our hearts where it's maybe easier to 
think about than to really experience and to really know. Spirit, I pray that you might do that work within us for our good and for your glory, that we might be, as you've always promised, a people through whom you bless and that we bless others. For your purposes we ask. Amen. We invite you to stand in a few moments and then we will uh, sing a closing song together, yet not I, but through Christ in me.